0: Welcome to episode 178, Setting the Tone at the Top, Anti-Oppressive and Trauma-Informed Leadership and Supervision, featuring Crystal Martinez-Acosta, Licensed Professional Counselor. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn. Grow. Shine. This episode is proudly sponsored by Best Notes Electronic Health Record, software built for practices poised for growth and compliance. Visit BestNotes.com/slash clearlyclinical for a free demonstration. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, and today I am honored and delighted to be joined by Crystal Martinez Acosta. She is a licensed professional counselor supervisor, and her background and her passion is really creating clinical care and supervision that are anti-oppressive and trauma-informed. And goodness knows, as we have this conversation, there's so many mental health organizations that can be really oppressive and exploitative, not only of clients, but also of staff. Um, so I'm, I'm grateful to Crystal for her work and for joining us for this conversation today. Welcome, Crystal.
1: Thank you so much, Beth. Thank you for having me. I am so honored to have this conversation on this wide platform. Thank you so much.
0: So before we dive into what is a very heavy and meaningful topic, why don't you tell us a little bit more about you and how this came to be something that you believe in so firmly?
1: Sure. So um, I am Crystal Martinez-Acosta. I'm a licensed professional counselor supervisor, a nationally um, board-certified counselor, a certified clinical trauma professional. I've been in practice for a little over 10 years, maybe over 11 years now. And um, I have been living in the desert. I'm a desert rat, <laughs> as they say. <laughs> I don't know who they is, but um, here... <laughs> Somebody said it. <laughs> yeah, someone someone said that. I think I made that up. Um, and so out here in El Paso, Texas, um, you know, it is a place where We don't have very many mental health resources, or at least historically that has been so. And so it's been very important for me to um, create safe spaces, create trauma-informed spaces, and to be a counselor educator, um, to be someone who um, provides quality mental health care in my private practice. Um, I have worked in the nonprofit sector For um, many years, that's where I gained most of my experience, but I now own my own private practice and consultation firm, and uh, I now teach at the university level and um, help grow other counselors. And I think that it's very important to talk about anti-oppressive and trauma-informed and anti-racist practices in the clinical world because this is where it all starts. It starts with us and taking care of ourselves, taking care of our clinicians so that we can provide high quality care for the public. And um, if we're not taking care of ourselves and each other, then I think that we're not going to be able to provide that quality care for our clients.
0: Thank you for tackling what is such a heavy topic. You and I have talked before just about the exploitation and an oppression that occurs in this particular industry. And that's not to say that it's not occurring in other industries. It's just really interesting when you have a field that has this backbone in colonialism. um, And we could have a whole separate conversation about diagnosis and what is pathologized, it's actually coping and all of that, um, to put a pin in that conversation and I'm sure we as a platform will continue and we'll get to that conversation. Why don't you first start by, I guess, naming some of the problems that you see in the industry that lead you to say, hey, this is a conversation we need to, to have about creating an anti-oppressive and trauma-informed clinical
1: environment. Absolutely. So I think when you and I had first talked to each other, we have this kind of shared experience about working in like the nonprofit sector. And this is not exclusive to the nonprofit sector, but it can be an experience that most clinicians have had in really any agency, right? And so it is familiar to what we call the nonprofit industrial complex, right? Which is based in capitalism. And we all know that, um, We all need money to survive, right? And nonprofits need money to survive and any agency needs money to survive. But I think the issue is that once we become focused on funding and once we become focused on where the income is going to come from, we start to lose focus on the people. And so when we start to do that, we lose sight of what is being affected, which is the quality of care and the care of the clinicians. And um, we start to experience burnout, right, in, in the system. And so I feel what I have experienced personally, professionally, and what I've seen in my colleagues is this system-wide sense of burnout and sense of oppression and the way that I have seen that is where we have clinicians who are overworked, meaning having really high caseloads, um, you know, anywhere from 60 to 70 to 80 to 100 to 200 people on their caseload um, at any given time. And that is for the agency to stay afloat financially. Um, what that ha- What that means is clinicians have to see clients hour after hour after hour hearing, you know, traumatic things, things that, you know, every therapist has to hear. But at such a high level and at such a high volume that we're not able to stop and process and take care of ourselves, we start to get that sense of compassion fatigue, burnout, vicarious trauma. And it's unchecked because either management or the, the leadership sometimes might lose sight of wanting to take care of the clinician because they're so focused on the funding, like I said earlier. So I think that's one of the issues that I have seen. So then, of course, that trickles down to the client or to the patient. And I think the quality of care starts to get diminished. So if you have a bunch of clinicians in an agency, for example, who have hundreds of clients on their caseload, I can't imagine how Each of those clients is getting the highest quality care, which is something that I think we should strive for. I know that we're not perfect. Every therapist is not perfect and we shouldn't strive to be perfect. But I think that we should always strive to try to have best practice and at least trauma-informed practice. So when we are burned out, how do we do that? How do we care for others when we can't even stay afloat ourselves? So I think that's one of the main issues that I think I've seen in agencies, whether they're for-profit or non-profit or any type of agency.
0: It's such a complicated phenomenon. And I remember back in what I call therapy school, this conversation about, okay, if there is a person with a diagnosis that you're not too familiar with, or, you know, here are all of the things that you do in order to work with that person or appropriately refer out. And I remember... Starting an agency work and having a bookshelf of accumulated books over the years from other staff members there that were ne'er opened because nobody had time for it. So it was the awareness that we needed more education and more conversation, more supervision than we were receiving. But it was the first thing to go. Like it's always reminded me of like human resources. (laughs) It's like when you're trimming the fat, so to speak, organizationally. At least in my experience, the first thing to go for clinicians is supervision. We had a really interesting conversation on this platform with Samson Techlamarium last year talking about that that it is usually the first thing to go is supervision and appropriate educational opportunities for clinicians. and then imagine how not only that's affecting the clinician, but how it's trickling down to the client. And we've created an environment where we have the newest greenest clinicians realistically with the less or with the least amount of time to invest and learn how to do their jobs. And at least for me, I remember my first day working in a nonprofit was like, here are your keys, bye. <laughs> <laughs> like mm-hmm. there yeah. was no orientation, there was no training, like, it was like, okay, and then you need to show up here on Tuesday at 9am for two hours of group supervision. But a lot of the therapists didn't show up there because they had a crisis they were responding to, or they had clients that they need to see. And so they might pop in for like six minutes for supervision to say that they were there and sign in and then maybe be able to claim it on their supervision report sheet. Um, but it was such a stark example of dysfunction in mental health care on the higher levels once we're going into the leadership and supervision conversation. Um, I'm sure you have lots of reactions
1: to that. (laughs) Please share. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that's an example that really speaks to how scary it can be, right, to have such a lack of support as a clinician, um, not having that access to supervision. Um, Like you said, when people start to trim the fat or cut corners in their organizations to make ends meet. If supervision is one of the first things to go, then where do clinicians get their support? How do they deal with their vicarious trauma and their burnout? And how do they process what they need to process from what they've heard all day? Or how do they learn what they need to learn to deal with complex cases? And how do they deal with or process uh, what is going on in their own personal lives, not in the therapy sense, but you know, there's this intersection of being able to talk about what is happening personally um, in supervision as it pertains to or affects your job, and um, if it's crossing wires, so to speak, with your clinical work, and there needs to be space for that. And if there isn't space for that, what is happening with therapists? And so, if we're not taking care of therapists, um, that's going to definitely trickle down to the clients. And so something that you mentioned is like the young clinician, right? The green clinician that's coming into the workforce. And what's interesting about that is the kind of naivety or the Um, naive enthusiasm that they come into this career with, right? That we've all had, I think, where we just want to get our hours and we want to get our full license and we'll do anything just to complete all of our hours and get our certificate going and everything. Right. So it's like, we will do anything aside from scrubbing the floor, <laughs> you know, and maybe we'll do that too. If we were, I in did a that. Nonprofit. I did that. I was in right?
0: residential. I did the floor. I did the toilets. I did that.
1: <laughs> right. Or like in the nonprofit that I worked at, like the toilet was always overflowing. So it was like, let's go shut that toilet off. You know, like that was just part of what would happen. Um, there, you know, lack of funding and stuff like that. So I think that we are just in a space sometimes, um, with how colonized and how oppressive the actual licensure process already is and how linear it is, um, how restrictive it is. And we, we just want to be done with everything, you know, so that we can get the license. And so sometimes at that point, when we are naively enthusiastic, we'll get hired at a place and maybe be paid very low um, for what we are worth, right? Or be assigned 100 clients and we don't know what we're in for at that point. And then we have on top of that low support and supervision or management who may not even be clinically trained or poorly clinically trained. And so all of those things, I think, are problematic and add to the pressures of being not only a young clinician, but any clinician. And in that situation, it's almost, like you said, exploitative and a little bit predatory practice.
0: As you were talking about that, it reminded me of one of the jobs that I had applied for at one point that I had progressed through the interview phases And I remember talking to human resources about the benefits and my jaw dropped that what they offered was five days per year of sick and vacation time total and no holidays off because it was a high acuity facility. And... I, at that point, was very new in my career. As you just highlighted, I wanted the hours. I wanted to hit the ground running. I was excited and enthusiastic. And I remember my challenge walking away from that um, and then encountering colleagues, people that I knew who had accepted those jobs. And, and you need to. like We're vying for positions. We're trying to get the employment that we need, the supervision that we need in order to get licensed to really be able to do the work. Um, But it is, I think, in that way, I think it is an appropriate use of the word predatory. And I don't think it meant to be. But I think, as you said, when funding is the bottom line, the thoughtfulness for staff um, and for burnout and quality of care really goes by the wayside. And the joke that I'm sure you've seen circulate on social media or has been made that it's like, there are not enough $5 Starbucks cards to go around at whatever staff meeting to acknowledge who had the highest productivity or who had the fewest call outs or who had the fewest red flags on audits. Um, that it is, at least in my experience, it was in poor taste because it was so absurd to assume that a $5 Starbucks card was enough to undo the damage that had been done to really disenchanted and discouraged staff uh, And and supervisees.
1: Absolutely. And I think, um, there's also the joke of like pizza parties or like free dress days, right. Where you don't have to dress up professionally and you can wear jeans instead. Um, and it's like, I'm going to behave less professionally because I'm wearing jeans, um, you know, (laughs) and not abide by my ethics suddenly. Um, but I think non nonprofits and any agency that, you know, starts to, focus on the bottom line that starts to focus on funding and less on their people start to run the risk of you know really disappointing their staff and really um skimping out on quality of care and i think it's important to really pay attention to how you said how the absurdity of that right like the five dollar gift card i mean we're professionals. I think also counseling is not just a profession. I really think it's a calling. It doesn't really have anything to do with, oh, I have a master's degree and I'm held responsible because I have a license that is monitored by the state. I think it's um, also an identity. And so um, to ha- to be given a Starbucks gift card <laughs> is Is truly insulting, right, to to somebody who has been called to do this deep work with people. Um, I really think that when somebody has given me the pizza party or the Starbucks gift card, what I am asking for really are the principles of trauma-informed care. Um, What I'm asking for are anti-oppressive practices. What I'm asking for are um, equity and representation of uh, races and LGBTQI plus, um, people at all levels of leadership. And what I'm asking for is people at leadership levels to look like me and speak like me and, you know, just different things like that. That's what I'm asking for. Not really the Starbucks gift card, right? So I'm asking for a lower caseload and something else that I've talked to my colleagues about is, um, you know how self-care and why I think they should do away with the term of self-care is how I think self-care is bullshit. <laughs> because how at, at this level, right, when we are called to do this deep work as clinicians and therapists, and um, we are dealing with people's deepest, darkest traumas and walking with them through these deep, dark times in their lives, um you know, and we're being exposed to this daily, hour by hour, and you give us a 100 person caseload, right? And they say, well, just do some self-care. It's like, well, that's bullshit, because (laughs) how am I being given the time or the space or even the resources such as the income or the time off or any of those things, right? Like a gym membership or anything, right? Benefits, um, sometimes we don't even have insurance at certain agencies to be able to go to the dentist or go to the doctor, right? Or our co-pays are so ridiculous or our premiums are so high. So how do we engage in self-care? So what we want to do is start to shift the focus to a trauma-informed lens in that way as well and start to do, um, start to think of it as communities of care, a system of care, not just self-care, because the individualistic way of looking at this profession is not working.
0: And it, I think it really puts the onus on the person who's burnt out um, to say basically, well, you didn't do enough of whatever magical thing. You didn't go on enough walks on your lunch hour. You didn't get enough mani-pedis. You didn't do X, Y, Z that would have given you more self-care that was somehow going to offset and develop more resilience. And I think that that just contributes to almost this kind of systemic gaslighting that's saying like, well, you should be able to handle this. And I remember, at least for myself, like, literally curled up in a ball under my desk, <laughs> like having trouble breathing, because I was so overwhelmed. Um, and at that moment, I remember thinking like, I should be able to do this. And, and as Time passed being like, no, I shouldn't. <laughs> like, I should not be able to do this. Like, this is a really unhealthy and sick system. Um, and obviously, as you and I talk about it, systemic dysfunction ranges of where you're going to find. And we're not speaking about all nonprofits. And I'm sure there are some out there that are already integrating these um, processes and these ideas. But that there is so often this sense of hollowness trying to deliver good care because it's a fractured system and as crystal's talking about compassion fatigue and burnout and overwhelm for our listeners if you haven't listened to them please go back and look at some of our past episodes we have some great ones um talking about these exact concepts and how do we embody basically our own health Um, And focus on our own health and mental health in order to be better providers. And how do we operate in a system that wasn't designed for it? Um, So on that note, Crystal, my next question for you, can you talk a little bit, what are the principles and foundations of trauma-informed care as they relate to leadership and supervision?
1: Sure. So... If you have heard of trauma-informed care or attended a training in trauma-informed care, you might be familiar with the following terms. So there's safety, there's trustworthiness and transparency, there's peer support or mutual self-help, there's empowerment, voice, and choice, there's collaboration or mutuality, and there's um, culture, history, and gender issues. Um, So These are the principles of trauma-informed care. And something that I always like to talk about when I talk about this subject is how trauma-informed care is really not a trend. It's simply not going to go anywhere since much of the population, at least 67% of people in general, not even the clinical population, just general population, have experienced a an adverse childhood experience. Um, we do need to be aware of trauma informed services or a trauma informed lens. And so, by the time they get to a clinical setting, a client, um, right, a client in a clinical setting may have experienced a um, an adverse childhood experience, and that number goes up to ninety percent. So, if a clinician is seeing somebody. In a clinical setting, you are being exposed to that at least 90% of the time, right? So most of your caseload, most of the people on your caseload will have had some sort of adverse childhood experience. You're going to come across somebody with some sort of traumatic event, at least in their early childhood. So that's not even counting anything that has happened to a client after the age of 18. So it's important to be able to be aware of why these principles are important when it comes to supervision and when it comes to leadership, because the staff that you were leading and the clinicians that you were leading had have a very high likelihood of being exposed to a client who has had some sort of adverse childhood event, or at least some sort of traumatic event. We all know that COVID was a global and, um, communal trauma, right? Um, I think even just watching the news, if you still haven't, uh, you know, gotten COVID yourself or, um, you know, watching any of the social or community violence or racial racism sort of events, those kinds of things um, that we're watching on the news can also cause vicarious trauma. So clients being exposed to all kinds of things in our day and age Um, will also cause, may also cause some sort of distress to some clients. And so the likelihood of having a clinician being exposed to a trauma is very high. So um, a clinician also may have had their own trauma. There's a high likelihood of that as well. So when it comes to supervision, When it comes to safety, for example, it's not only physical safety, right? I mean, there are some agencies that, you know, we've talked about, you know, scrubbing the floor, fixing the toilets, and we joke about that, right? But, you know, there are some places that maybe aren't physically safe. Um, They're placed in, like, neighborhoods or the buildings are falling apart that are not safe, right? So we do have to consider where are we meeting our needs? Supervisees, where are we meeting with our staff? Do our staff feel safe? Do the um, supervisees and everybody that we're working with feel safe physically? But we're also talking about psychological and emotional safety, right? So the way that we really um, try to get people to feel safe is through the other principles, right? So safety comes from being transparent, Safety comes from being trustworthy, being reliable, being able to tell people this is where my logic is coming from, Um, being able to show um, statistics or numbers or being able to show your supervisee, um, you know, this is where my decision making is coming from. This is where uh, this rule comes from in the board rules or in the ethical code, right? And walking them through that so that you're not just seen as this powerful authority figure, because there already is a powerful, I mean, there already is a power differential in supervision, because of the way the system is set up, right? You are a supervisee, you have to have a supervisor to acquire your hours, or there's a hierarchy in an organization, we still haven't really, many organizations still haven't walked away from the hierarchy. So when there's a a hierarchy in an organization, it's expected to have um, a power differential. So what you kind of want to do is eliminate that as much as possible or flatten that power differential as much as possible by being as transparent as possible with supervisees and staff. So that's one of the ways to get to safety.
0: I, I'm glad you bring up that point um, because I think that sometimes there's an idea in management, and I'm intentionally using the word management instead of leadership, because I think those are different things. Um, But so if if we're managing staff, I've certainly experienced this idea where something is trickling down, that is somehow painful, it's somehow increasing staff or client suffering, whatever that is, you know, that you're going to make less or, or we're going to ask you to work more crisis shifts, and you're going to need to be here on an important holiday or whatever it is. And the way that that information is delivered is without any sensitivity, without any acknowledgement of kind of the fallout. And then it just contributes to the sense of not being held, the sense of not being appreciated. And you're nodding. I'm certainly thinking of circumstances where I experienced that, where it was like something bad was happening that was out of the control of the supervisor or that manager. But the way that it was communicated was kind of a well, this is just the way it is suck it up. And I think there's a fear among managers or supervisors that when we say, Yeah, I don't really like it. And I don't agree with this either. And it really sucks that we're joining against the organization. Can you speak to that? Um, because I I think for a lot of folks, there's almost this indoctrination where it's like, well, if if I'm going to have a manager's badge, then I need to be super gung ho about things I don't even believe in, because that's just what it means to be a manager.
1: (laughs) Right. I think being in that middle management position, or in that you're in that middleman sort of position, that's a really sucky position to be in. I've definitely been in that position. And I think, in a previous conversation that you and I had, we talked about that and it's being like an S umbrella, right? Um, (laughs) So you're kind of wanting to protect the staff that in the hierarchy are quote unquote, like below you, right? Like so subordinates, but then also you have this sense of almost like loyalty to like the company. And it's almost like I have these sets of rules that I may not necessarily agree with or have, you know, go against my guiding principles as a clinician. Because sometimes clinicians are the ones who get promoted into these positions. And we know that sometimes our values and ethics might go against what the organization is trying to achieve. So I think it's difficult to be in that position, first of all. So I have a lot of empathy and sympathy for people who are in this position. I think that, When you work in an anti oppressive and trauma informed way, one thing to consider is how to conceptualize the system. So the system is broken, the system is sick, right? You yourself, as one individual, are probably not going to change the whole system, right? And so just being able to accept that and being able to say, okay, what aligns best with my ethics, my principles, and my values, and what can I control, right? So I think that something that is going to be really important in that situation is being able to seek peer support, being able to collaborate as much as possible within the system, being able to create a sense of mutuality with leadership, being able to say, and these are all trauma-informed principles that I'm mentioning here, being able to say, um, you know, some of these things that you were asking me to do or that you're asking me to implement with staff don't necessarily align with, you know, X, Y, or Z values. But this is where we have common ground. And that's where advocacy comes in, right? But it's not advocacy for becoming a martyr and like, getting fired and, you know, cause I've been there too, where you just kind of stick your neck out there. Right. Um, but it's creating a sense of mutuality. Um, and also being aware that there's power in numbers with the other staff, right? So empowering your, um, colleagues, empowering the staff that you are supervising, that you are, called to lead at that moment and being able to come up with a joint solution to share that power, the power that you've been given or appointed, so to speak, um, or quote unquote, right? And being able to share that power because that's what um, trauma-informed care and kind of anti-oppressive practices would ask one to do is not to just hold that power on your own, is to share the power, right? Right. Um, and to empower others and distribute that power. So I think it takes that pressure off of the supervisor. And also, if you are a supervisor and you have done something that you feel like was was like an injury or a rupture to somebody on your staff, um, there's also something in trauma informed and anti-oppressive and social justice lenses that's called like restorative justice, right? And repairing. And so you are always able to go back and talk to that staff member, talk to that group and say, you know, these things um, were asked of me by leadership. And these things were asked of me, and I didn't have time to reflect on them, for example. And I implemented them because I felt like I had to, or I felt um, oppressed, or I felt A sense of urgency or I felt reactive in the moment and I hurt you or I injured part of the system and I apologize for that and how can I repair this rupture how can I kind of make it up to you in a sense and so going back and repairing is a really important part of anti-oppressive practices and especially supervision. Supervision is a very, I feel like intimate sort of um, relationship. And so um, I I have personally had, I don't know how to word this. So I don't know if you want to edit this part (laughs) out or, um, but I'm going to say it. So I, I have personally had supervisors who have ruptured our relationships, but never really repaired them. And I think that if they would have come back to repair them, it would have been incredibly meaningful. It also would have modeled, I think for me, how to do that in the future with my supervisees. And I think also it would have been incredibly trauma-informed because, you know, in my personal history, there's, you know, trauma related to like rupture without repair. So I think when you do that as a supervisor, as a leader, it can be a corrective emotional experience even. So I think it's really important to be able to go back and repair.
0: I'm glad you bring up that point. Um, it is interesting. And I have thought to myself, observing the breakdown in systems at large that are really mirroring family systems and kind of this unilateral potential abuse of power of like, well, that's just the way it is, sit down, shut up, deal with it, buck up, um, and that we as mental health professionals know that that doesn't really work well in families, and that it's not a healthy family system. And yet here we are doing it in organizations. And certainly, there are going to be things that we're not going to agree with. there are going to be things that are going to come down the line from corporate or whoever else it is and saying, well, this is what we have to do now. Um, and that shift can be uncomfortable, but I think existing in a space where you can join and share that and have that vulnerability and intimacy. I, as a parent, can reflect on so many times that something's happening that I don't like and I don't agree with, and I'm not like, sucks for you. <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. I really try to be like, yeah, like this is not ideal. I know you don't want to go to the dentist right now, um, or whatever this thing is that you quote unquote have to do. Um, but I think that reminder is important that if we're creating the safety to pull from the values and kind of tenants that you were mentioning, we need to echo a healthier family system in the
1: workplace. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it all has to it does tie into like systems theories, it ties into looking at how everything intersects, right? And to be able to use critical thinking skills, looking at uh, problems or issues or even successes through a critical lens. Uh, what are the factors that are influencing this occurrence um, through different angles? You absolutely have to look at it that way. You talked about safety, and I want to go back to
0: some of the other trauma-informed principles and give you the opportunity to kind of share some more examples of how you see that playing out in mental health organizations. Um, So go ahead, I'll let you take the mic and just kind of share what this looks like in practice of here. Here are the things that are in violation of this tenant and here's how we actually embody it.
1: Absolutely. Sure. So I think um, one of the other ones we've talked about safety. We talked about transparency, which is sort of equal to trustworthiness. Um, Trustworthiness is an interesting one because we are as clinicians always trying to build rapport with clients. So. It's similar in systems. We also want to build rapport with our colleagues and with our stakeholders and with the system, right? And so trauma-informed principles and the trauma lens needs to be applied throughout the whole system. So from what we call the very, very top to what we would call the very, very bottom, which is those aren't, you know, the terms that I prefer, but that's what the world has and what we understand, right? So um. Another one would be peer support and mutual self-help. We want to kind of implement the sense of community of care or um, systems of care, being able to allow uh, space and benefits and mutuality um, when it comes to being able to have clinicians and stakeholders and everybody care for themselves, giving them the space and the resources to be able to do that. And also not having people work in isolation. I think something that is incredibly important to consider is you know, the whole caseload issue, right? When you are incredibly busy with your day, sometimes as a therapist, you walk in in the morning, you might not eat lunch, uh, you might not go to the bathroom, you might not drink water, and then you come out and it's dark outside and there's nobody left in the building. And that's incredibly isolating. And yes, you have contacted your clients and you've seen them, but that's certainly not peer support. So we definitely want to be able to provide a space where people feel safe to communicate with each other, where people have that collegiality and camaraderie um, to be able to speak with each other. um you know, throughout the day or between sessions um, and, you know, team building situations, retreats, uh, time away from the office together, or um, even just time off where um, even other organizations are able to talk to one another that do similar work. That would also be an example of peer support. Another way that I briefly mentioned to or another principle that I briefly mentioned is empowerment. So being able to share power with. Everyone, right? So kind of being able to do away with the hierarchy, which I think makes a lot of people uncomfortable. That is definitely the status quo, being able to have an executive director and then a director of operations and then your clinical director and then your supervisors and then your subordinates after that, right? So the more that you can do away with the hierarchy, which sounds really, really uncomfortable <laughs> um, for some people... I think will be incredibly empowering for the entire organization and the entire system. Why? Because it empowers their voice. It empowers their choice. Being able to give power back to everyone. So putting out surveys, being able to make joint decisions with everyone, doing away with titles, doing away with hierarchy, that creates a lot of safety in relationships. That also um, makes people Really believe that you have an open door policy. How many times have we had bosses where they say, I have an open door policy, but their doors are closed, (laughs) like literally physically, right? Um, So that's the kind of thing that we would want to do with empowerment and voice and choice. Being able to listen to one another during meetings, being able to have some sort of feedback system, whether it's anonymous or whether it's at meetings. being able to take people seriously when they have a concern, um, respecting boundaries when people bring up a, a concern, if it's confidential in HR, for example, being able to uh, give people choices in, in, for example, benefits, right? How would you like this benefit paid out? Do you want to increase your dental benefits or do you want to decrease um, your Vacation time, I don't know, just kind of having those little choices will give staff and therapists power and a sense of, okay, I have a sense of agency over my career and where my life is going. Um, And that's incredibly important. Another thing to consider is collaboration and mutuality. A lot of these principles overlap, but in supervision, um, really being able to look at the other person as an expert in their own life or in their own sense, right? Um, Yes, you might be a supervisor because the state gave you that title or because the hierarchy is maintaining the status quo, but being able to collaborate with your supervisee or your staff really is empowering for them, but also gives you an opportunity to uncover so much talent. And I think that um, collaborating is a really great way to unleash creativity and power um, in an organization and creating mutuality. So that sense of, I am not above you, you know, coming out of your office, if you're a leader, um, having lunch with people, opening up about, you know, some of your struggles in your personal life, showing that you're human as well. Um, I know that with my supervisees, for example, um, I speak with them in a very casual manner. I talk to them and I tell them and I joke with them. I'm unconventional yet competent, right? Because I want to be approachable. I want them to feel safe in the relationship. And I want them to be able to feel like they can be honest with me. Because if they make a mistake, for example, out in the clinical world, or there's a crisis happening... I, I need to know about those things as a supervisor because, unfortunately, in the hierarchy of things, I'm going to be liable for that kind of situation. But at the same time, I don't want them to feel shame and I don't want them to feel like I have power over them and to hide that situation. I want them to be able to come to me so that we can contain it together. So... Um, you know, we cuss in front of each other. We eat lunch together. We um, laugh with each other and joke. We talk about TikTok videos that we've seen. I mean, I think there are a lot of different. W- excuse me. I think there are a lot of different ways to create mutuality in a relationship and to collaborate, and um, kind of diminish that power dynamic. And then, of course, the last one is cultural history and um, gender issues. And I think what they mean by gender issues is, you know, anything that is related to the LGBTQ spectrum. So I think being able to acknowledge people's pronouns, being able to um, something as simple as acknowledging, you know, how they present present in the world, what they are doing, how or not what they're doing, but who they are, what their history is historically um, in the world. If they have any history of um, racial trauma, for example, like in my case, um, you know, working for nonprofits, it's interesting because here in El Paso, Texas, we are a town of almost a million people of Mexican American descent, but many of the people who run our nonprofit organizations are whites. And so I think that's an interesting disparity or incongruency. <laughs> and so I think being able to acknowledge that culture gap and being able to um, talk about representation, talk about um, my history, being able to talk about a person's identity and how that contributes to their work, either clinically or in an organization, is incredibly important. And not dismissing that is going to be really, really critical in their work.
0: You brought up an idea and I want to circle back to it.
1: I think sometimes one of the
0: concerns that happens in management slash leadership and supervision is if we invite sharing that there's a potential for the overshare, for the meeting to be monopolized, quote unquote, how do you walk that boundary of inviting somebody to exist in the world as they are and be welcomed and appreciated and seen while also balancing the needs of the other people that are in that space as well?
1: Yeah, that's a really valid concern and a really good question. I think going back again to the principles, um, the guiding principles in trauma informed care is a good place to start. So having transparency and trustworthiness also comes with boundaries, right? So being able to lead a meeting and say, we're going to share, and this is kind of what I'm expecting from the sharing today. And then being able to model that, right? So that mutuality and collaboration, um, sharing your own history and showing what that would look like, right? As somebody who might be leading the meeting or starting the meeting um, so that way people know what to expect. And then if somebody really gets carried away, gently saying, you know, if this is something that I, you know, it sounds like this is very important for you to continue process. This is something that I think we should talk about in private. I definitely don't want to disrespect you, but just because of the parameters of the time and everything you have to get done today... I think that we can meet privately after this or we can meet privately at another time and we can circle back to it, but truly go back and circle back to it. Not just let's put a pin in that and then never come back to it walk away like from some it. people Run do. quickly. <laughs> right. Yeah. So really showing that care and concern, but really sticking to your word, which is also trustworthiness, right? Thank you for
0: kind of breaking that down and sharing, it sounds like the importance of boundaries and also expectation setting and being able to create the space and maintain the space while also hold the boundary of that space, um, I think is an important one. And as you've already said, it's certainly not uncommon in this work for things to come up that really get us that really hurt. And I think we've all been in meetings where something comes up, and it's really heavy, it's really hard, it's painful, you're surprised. I mean, there's so many feelings that could come up. And then there's also this kind of simultaneous balancing of well, and then we're here today to learn a new system of treatment planning. <laughs> and so, like, how do you balance all of these different needs? I, and from what I'm hearing from you, it's it's a matter of expectation and boundary and transparency.
1: Absolutely, and also considering that the agency or the organization doesn't have to rely on itself for those conversations. So for example, the type of work that I do for consultation services is related to that. So if somebody an organization was having a difficult time sorting through a problem, they could, you know, get some sort of consultant or have another leader from another organization come in and hold some sort of um get somebody to hold space for them, right? And have them be like either a mediator or do a retreat space for them or do a consultation for them. So that way they don't feel that awkwardness of, okay, let's have this difficult conversation. And now we're going to talk about the quarterly finances. <laughs> yes. You know, so yeah, it's that weird transition. Right. So um, I think that speaks to the um, like peer support principle where you don't have to just live in this vacuum by yourself as an organization. Um, you can, yes, rely on each other, but you can also rely on other systems in your community.
0: Again, as you're talking about this, I can hear that family systems piece coming in, which is like we can share these experiences. There's no one person leading a family. It's this collaborative process. Um, When looking at this idea of anti-oppressive practices and leadership and supervision, one of the things that's occurring to me as it stands right now, as we record this in 2023, we have more mental health clinicians leaving the field than we have joining it which I think speaks to how stark these phenomena are and the impact on mental health professionals as a service profession. Um, Why is it so important that we create anti-oppressive trauma-informed practices from that quote-unquote top-down? What are the benefits of doing it? What are the drawbacks of not?
1: Definitely, okay, so I think the benefits of implementing trauma-informed care throughout the whole system, and especially in systems of care, especially starting uh, with leadership, and especially because we do tend to have that trickle-down effect because of the way our systems are formed at the moment. It's so important because, like you mentioned, we have a retention issue, not only in individual organizations, but in the whole career itself. I think more than ever. Clinicians want freedom. Clinicians want choice. Clinicians want to be respected for their work. And I think that the principles of trauma-informed care really embody what a clinician is meant to do. And like I said earlier, it's a calling. It's, it's almost a mission. It's an identity. It's not just a job. And I think people in leadership positions need to realize that It's not about the bottom line for clinicians. It's really, truly about our identities. And if they want to target something that deals with retention and a tangible way to help reach the hearts of clinicians, trauma-informed principles are a really good way to reach that. I think the drawbacks of not implementing trauma-informed care for clinicians is that you'll have less of the principles. You'll have less safety, less trustworthiness, less transparency, less support, less empowerment, less collaboration, and less attention to culture and history, anti-oppressive, anti-racism practices. And I think that those are all the things that clinicians stand for, and you won't have any clinicians left. (laughs) So I think that those principles are really based on like values, but they're also based in ethics and they're based in our identities as therapists. They're interesting concepts because
0: as you've said, so much of this field is kind of a calling as a field. We tend to have more highly sensitive people, people with neurodivergence that are in these positions. And even just that awareness of the personality traits that bring us into this and kind of the inherent vulnerabilities within that of being so typically person-centered and um, for some folks, perfectionistic, you know, wanting to do our best, really enthusiastic. these It was my experience working in treatment that sometimes when there was in an unhealthy system, a display of passion, of um, go get them attitude, that... In unhealthy systems management, was like, oh, how do we exploit that? <laughs> like, and I was like, whoa, like, not how do we celebrate that, but like, how do we exploit that? Like, it's this product that we can just use up till the very last drop, and then kind of leave a clinician left behind um, that's been consumed by the system. Um, and, and I think, as you and I talked about before, because I have worked with so many companies over the years. It's been interesting for me as a consultant where you step into systems and say, well, here are some of my recommendations. And ultimately, it's going to be up to you to how you're implementing these ideas and and how you reject or hold them, knowing that I, too, am only one person coming at it from a certain background and a certain experience or education, Um, but you know, you've mentioned this idea of like, what, what is it like to bring in an external consultants that's saying, well, here are some ways that you can build your staff relationships, here are some things that you can do to restructure your benefits package in order to be more thoughtful and supportive of whole person health that we are touting on one side saying whole person health for our, our clients for our patients, and then not walking that walk
1: on the other hand. <laughs> absolutely yeah definitely and isn't that interesting that weird i don't even know what the word is is it like paradox where it's like in mental health care we don't even care about our clinicians or therapists mental health like at least that's what it seems to be right where clinicians are so burned out they're leaving at such a high rate they're leaving the career i used to make this joke I still kind of do make this joke, not so much anymore in private practice, but I joke about it sometimes that if this whole therapy thing doesn't work out for me, meaning if I burn out completely, I'll just open a food truck. You know, I would and... sell kayaks. That would be mine. <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah. yeah. I think every therapist has their like plan B or their like passion backup plan because, you know, honestly, this is hard work. It's and it's not just sitting and listening to somebody and it's not just about finances and the bottom line. It's again a calling and it needs to be respected. And I think the trauma informed principles is of an avenue to that form of respect for us. I think
0: I am encouraged by the fact that a number of larger organizations in medical and mental health care have really started embodying these principles i think in the last 10 15 years in a way that i haven't seen before where it's more conversation about inclusivity about awareness about and even down to the expectation of here's how we treat each other not just leadership to staff or staff to staff but patients clients this is how we treat each other like we are going to have a tone of respect and a tone of empowerment and here's how we set that from the top i think we're starting I'm hoping that we're starting to see this shift in society where this becomes more of a way that we carry ourselves instead of the um the exception.
1: I hope so, and I know that a lot of people like I mentioned at the very beginning of the recording today that you've probably taken a trauma informed care training. You've probably heard of that buzzword and when people say, "Oh, I'm trauma informed." Are you really, right? And really think about the principles? How are they applying those and Are they doing it because it's a trend? Are they saying I'm trauma-informed because it's part of a trend? Because it has become wildly popular in the last few years for organizations to want to implement trauma-informed care. But are they actually walking the walk, right? Because it's a very different situation to be able to undo the hierarchy, for example. Do away with leadership titles or hire in inclusive ways, or completely dismantle policies and procedures that have existed, um, completely undo and erase policy and procedure manuals or benefits packages. It's difficult work. It's time-consuming work. And so I think when people say I'm trauma-informed, I would like for listeners to be to think about how they're going to critically evaluate the organist talking about that, or the person that is claiming that they're trauma. Are they truly doing that? Are they exhibiting and demonstrating that through their language, through their policies and procedures, through the waiting room that you walk into, through the office that you're sitting in? How are they demonstrating that? And so I'm hoping that more people start to, yes, get on board with it, but continue and maintain this set of principles. To have it
0: echo across all of the different ways people exist in that system, whether that's manager, service provider, a few a food preparer is one of the roles I'm thinking of. Like, I, I've seen that in treatment too, where it's like, well, here are the clinicians, <laughs> like there's some sparkles around those words. And then here are all of the other folks in treatment, <laughs> but like needing just more inclusivity and focus on bringing people in to a shared experience instead of the separation between groups. Um, Crystal, you and I could probably riff on this for quite a while. <laughs> um, for <laughs> our listeners who want to learn more about the concepts that you're discussing, not just anti-oppressive or trauma-informed care, but really its application in management and treatment, are there any go-to books, resources, websites that you really like?
1: Yes. So some of the resources that I would recommend for trauma-informed care implementation and to learn a little bit more about trauma-informed care, anti-oppressive practices, are the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration website. If you look at something called Tip 57 on their website, that is a trauma-informed care implementation guide. So that is something that you can look at. It's a very thick (laughs) Book or manual, but um, they have a very condensed version, and they send these out for free to organizations if you request them. Um, and you can also download the PDF for free as well. You can also go to um, any you know local library or you know anywhere where books are sold. You can get the book called Trauma Stewardship by. Vanderneut Lipsky, and they talk about how to care for each other and care for the self as a service provider, how to care for yourself. And that's a really good book, as far as not caring for the self, but also um, in terms of communities of care. That's a really good resource. The book is called Trauma Stewardship. People can also visit my website, www.clarityelpaso.com. I have a podcast called Through the Eyes of a Therapist there and I talk about trauma-informed care and other things related to my experience in trauma and supervision and my lived experience in mental illness and that's; those are some resources. <laughs>
0: Wonderful. Um, thank you so much for discussing a topic that really we can never have an enough discussion about it, but I think you've presented some concepts to help us really think more deeply about how am I embodying these? um, And and even just for our private practitioners out there, this is one thing that I've thought, not only working in agency, but even as a private practitioner of like, how am I taking care of myself when I'm setting boundaries about how late I'm going to work, or if I'm going to see somebody on weekends, things like that, that it's like, these are all extensions of these um, concepts to really, not just in the way we treat other people or we treat Um, supervisees, but how we're treating ourselves and just again, setting that tone. Um, Thank you so much, Crystal. I think you've, you've really opened up a lot of concepts and also provided resources that I think are very important for consideration. I'm grateful to you for spending this time with us today.
1: Thank you so much, Beth. I really appreciate the opportunity. And thank you so much to the listeners. And I hope everybody has a wonderful day.